today we come, you know, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and, and I'm not going to go over the intro stuff with Timothy as I have, but, you know, th- this is an important book because this is a book that Paul is writing to Timothy, who he sent to Ephesus to solve a problem, really. I mean, and I look at it, I, I, I keep things as simple and as basic as I can. I can sometimes be a little too simplistic. Timothy's there to troubleshoot. You know, Paul said, you got a problem, we got a problem in Ephesus, you go take care of it. And he's there to help resolve that problem. And the problem is with false teachings. We looked at some of that already. And what we're going to see tonight is really some of the problems the false teachers caused and how um, Paul is helping Timothy to solve those problems. And uh, the problems leaked over and spilled over into how they worshipped. Inevitably, in church life, problems impact worship. There's no, thanks, James. There's nothing that a church does consistently that takes the place of worship. It is the primary thing we do. Now, I know evangelism, and the two go together. You, you really can't separate worship and evangelism because worship will lead to evangelism. You, you can't say our priority is evangelism, and we don't really worry much about worship because you're going to lose all of the things you need to make evangelism work. And you can't say you're truly worshiping the Lord if you don't ultimately move towards evangelism. So I don't, I don't really make too much of a distinction in their importance. But it's the one thing we do. And so any, in my experience, problems in church life spill over into worship. So in some ways, you're going to see uh, Paul resolving some of those worships issues. And I think we're going to get through all of chapter 2 today. I hope to. And, and we're coming to a passage where there's a lot that, is strange to us in our culture, and we struggle with and uh, about the role of women, and we'll see that in a minute. But let me just give you a couple of things that, that's important from you know understanding scripture, you know, what we call hermeneutical process or interpreting or just understanding. I, I think more than anything else to understand the Bible, you've got to understand the context. And some of the context is strange to us. We don't live in the first century. That whole world's different to us. But remember and understand that Ephesus is a thoroughly pagan city. The, the Greeks, the Gentiles, they worship all these pagans. You go and read the book of Acts. You read Paul's struggle, you know, in, 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 in there in Ephesus and the battles he had with, this, you know, with the craftsmen and, and, you know, and all of those guys. It, it is an unbelievable, he spent three years there, it's an unbelievable battle. And that is a corrupt, sinful culture. And most of the followers of Jesus came out of the Greek culture. They never, just like us, they don't totally leave their culture. We, we all, we, we're surrounded by the culture all the time. You and I don't leave the culture around us. If you do, this is a miserable existence. So we interact with the culture all the time. I say this a lot. You engage the culture, but don't, you don't want to embrace it. Well, sometimes churches embrace culture and bring the culture in. And it's the struggle. So sometimes Paul, uh, in the midst of a thoroughly pagan, and I'll get to some of the stuff more in a minute, has to lay out some pretty, it seems, extreme measures. They really weren't extreme for the day and age. He's got to resolve the problem. And sometimes you and I may struggle with the way he resolved it. But that's okay. The resolving is legit, and the principles behind it are legit. So always try to understand I, I, I'm always cautious, not always, most, I think I'm always cautious. When I come to places like Timothy 
And I just, that is driving me nuts. The beeping, y'all can all hear that, right? So it's not just me going nuts. Okay, I just didn't know if the 70s finally caught up to me or not. But what I really and truly, oh, I'm going to shoot that thing this week. If, it, James, if that thing don't get fixed, I'm taking a knife. Tell Troy I'm going to take a hammer and just bludgeon that thing. Like, and I'm going to picture whoever's supposed to fix it in the process. That principle ain't in here by what I just said. The pastor's going to bludgeon something. Um, but, but you have to be careful that you don't make hard and fast rules, which we do all the time. Well, that's what it says. Once you go down that road, you got to keep every hard and fast rule. And we ignore, we, we're going to come to Pastor State where we ignore stuff we don't like, but we keep the stuff we like. And you'll see in just a minute. Okay. So what Paul is concerned with is orderliness in worship. Because once the worship becomes chaotic, it's a, it, first of all, it destroys the church. And second of all, it spills over into the community as a horrible witness to what's going on. And we've got to be careful. Listen, churches, we, we do more damage by the conflict we have amongst ourselves than anything else. Our conflicts damage our reputation. Who wants to be a part of us when we are no better than the world around us? There, first of all, then, Paul says, I urge that Request, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made in behalf of all people. So he's starting right off the bat. He talks about prayer. He gives four words. I know some people like to go, and I say this a lot, and make real distinctions between them. There are distinctions. You know, request, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving. But look at it this way. Everything you can think about in terms of praying for somebody, here it is. I make a request. We did a while ago. We, you, you had people you, who were sick. We request we request a prayer for them. The word prayer is a general term. You want to intercede on behalf of people, those who are lost, those who are facing death. We want to put ourselves there, interceding on their behalf, asking God on their behalf to work in their life. We want to be thankful when things work out. So we want, we want the totality of prayer. And so instead of trying to spend a lot of time figuring out exactly what it means, it means all of it when it comes to interceding for people. Part of our responsibility is to pray for people. You need to pray for people. I get requests constantly to pray for people, and, and, and I do. Sometimes I don't always remember what I'm praying for for them because sometimes you come up to me on Sunday and say, Preacher, pray for me this week. I'm like, all right. And I'll go and say, Lord, I don't remember what I was supposed to pray for, but I'm praying for them. And it's legit. I mean, he knows. But my heart is to pray for you. And, I, and sometimes I don't know people's names, but I picture them. God gets all that, okay? You know, this, this past week, in the past two weeks, I have, you know, I found out family relative of mine has had something go wrong. I had two people, a friends of mine, uh, one passed and, and one's wife passed, and I know about all wealth went to school with. And, uh, you know, you just say, okay, your heart gets burdened for people. And so you intercede. That's our responsibility, all people. And notice what he says. And this is cool. For kings and all in authority, that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. It's possible that if you see everything in light of false teaching, and I think it's critical, if, if, if the problem is false teaching or false teachers, then almost everything has to be seen in light of that. So it's quite possible that one of the things that was happening was there some type of idea of elitism or at least 
that refraining from praying for certain people. And, and there may even be some teaching about, you know, I don't want to say you don't pray for somebody, but some conflict within the church. And, and, and the conflict within the church can spill over to the, to the way the Ephesians dealt with them. Remember in Acts, if you read Acts, Paul had a lot of trouble with the Ephesians people. So he just says pray for everyone. The king at this time is Nero. Nero, the time Paul wrote this, Nero may very well have already begun the systematic persecution of Christians in Rome. People in authority are the people who oversee them. In, in Asia, Ephesus was in Asia Minor. And there was a strong persecution of Christians in Asia Minor. 30 years later, you remember last year when I talked about the book of Revelation, the deep fry, some you remember that? If not, you can go online and see all that. It's about three and a half hours long. Ephesus was one of the seven churches being persecuted in Asia Minor, in, in that part of Turkey. And I said, the problem that John's writing about was the persecution. He describes persecution. They were one of those churches. They're part of that area. So persecution, listen, nobody wants to be persecuted. And, it, and, it, and it's much simpler for us in the Christian life to, to be able to, if we have peace and tranquility, a lack of conflict. So pray for people. You pray for our leadership. Now, I don't care if you don't like them. There's, there's no loophole. Well, I belong to this party. I can't pray for that. But I'll pray for the person in that party. I'll pray they die. But I mean, that's not. Like, like sometimes it's hard. I get that. Your, response, your biblical responsibility is to pray for people. Now, understand this. We live in a different type of world than they lived in back then. Hang on a second. This is not a good day. That's beeping. My microphone's all over the place. I'm going bald. I'm irritated. All right. Where was it? Oh. In our world, the ultimate authority politically is the Constitution. Understand that. In Paul's world, it was the king. Be careful when you make exact equivalences between their world and our world. People do all the time. The president, the governor, the mayor, the whatever, is not the equivalent of the king. You got that, right? It's two different things. They don't have the power to put us to death. They can just throw in jail, all that. And I, don't, and I understand times are different. So you understand what I'm saying. So it was important. Plus, on numerous occasions, Paul was arrested. The civil authorities basically came to his aid. You do that. In godliness and dignity as a follower of Jesus. Notice what he says, verse 3. This is a good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You pray for all people because he wants them all to be saved. Now there's a whole lot always of discussion of what it means. when if God wants all people to be saved but they're not all saved. Why does that happen and all that. So sometimes we let our theology interfere with understanding scripture. There's all different types of theological traditions. I'm sure within our church are people who believe this way. Some of you are Calvinists. Some of you are not Calvinists. You're all trying to always guess what I am. And most of you never guess right. And, and everybody's always trying to get those things. And how does this fit in my theology? Well, the word all means everyone. God wants all people to be saved. It's simple. 
Peter says that. Paul says that. It's saved in several places. And obviously, it doesn't mean everybody's saved. It's not that God's will is thwarted. Don't overcomplicate this. I mean, I have a daughter. There's all sorts of things I want for my daughter that hadn't happened. And there's all sorts of things you may want. You think God doesn't want people to be saved? Is that the alternative? Well, I picked you, I picked you. I don't want you to be saved. No. All of us rebel against God. And I'm not going to go into all to all the doctrines of election and predestination, all those things that I hold dear and sacred. Listen, you can have two things be true at the same time that you and I don't understand. God chooses and elects those who come to faith. At the same time, he wants all people to come to faith. But all of us live in rebellion. Both of those things can be true. If your theology eliminates one of those, not need to rethink what you believe. I am always comfortable occasionally saying, I don't fully understand how that works. Now, I've had many people come up to me and say, Pastor, I can explain that to you. <laughs> Verse 5 says this. This is so cool. Now, it's quite possible in light of the false teachers that certain elements of the Greek philosophy had slipped in. He says, there's one God, and there's just one mediator also between God and man. That is Christ, the man Christ Jesus. He's the one who intercedes and mediates on us. He gave himself, and I love this, as a ransom for all. Christ died as our ransom for all, given the testimony at the proper time. In other words, the idea of a, the ransom is, a, is an economic uh, concept. It was used back then of, of Purchasing, for instance, if, if one of your relatives was broke and they were in debt, they might sell themselves into slavery. By the way, most people in, in Scripture who, you know, they talk about slavery, it's because people sold themselves into slavery. And that's, that was an economically advantageous thing for them. Someone might go buy them back, they would pay a ransom. If in war, your, uh, your son was taken as a prisoner of war, they, it seems they just killed them all the time. Oh, they give you a chance to come buy them back. You might go pay a ransom. Christ paid a ransom, not to someone. He didn't pay a ransom to God. Don't think that. He didn't pay a ransom to the devil. Don't take it too far. He just, it means this, he paid the price. What was the price for us to be saved? It was the price Christ paid on the cross. You and I should die for our sins. He did. This is part of the substitutionary death of Christ. He was substituted himself for us. For this I was appointed, he says, as a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. He says, I'm not lying. It's good that Paul didn't lie. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So he's leaning up to I said, I'm telling you something. So the false teachers were teaching something false. They were teaching something contrary to what Paul says. So Paul lays it out there. You guys pray because that's the priority. In spite of what others may say, you pray for all people in authority because God's will wants all people to come to faith, including those who might be you know, looking at you guys and on the outside listening in wondering what was going on. Christ gave himself as a ransom for all of us. That includes the people you don't like, the people you don't think should be saved, the people you don't know ever will be saved. He paid a price for them. 
And so you need to understand, pray for people. The gist of this is pray for people to be saved. That should be a priority of worship. And if you want to know who, the Lord wants all people to be saved. We don't know, we don't know the outcome, so we'll pray for all of them. All right. So, verse 8 through 15 deals with um, mostly with women in the church service. And so I have 14 minutes to do this. Man. Why don't we just spend about 13 minutes praying over this passage? <laughs> ask God for wisdom and guidance, and I'll give you a quick. So, <laughs> one of the biblical principles you have to remember is priority of order does not mean priority of value. At no point in this passage is the value of men and women ever at dispute. One thing Christianity did that was phenomenal. This is how Christianity changed the world. It elevated the value of women. I say that all the time. I tell you that all the time. One of the major things that we do in the book of Ephesians chapter 5 about all that submission thing, and I preached on this and taught on this, is we focus on women, you got to be submissive, children, you got to obey, slaves, all this. They all did that anyways. That was the culture. The important thing we miss is it said, oh, husbands, love your wives. Don't make it frustrating on your children and basically treat your slaves better. That was unheard of. We skip over that part. So um, in the concept of what is called primogenitor, which is the right of the firstborn, the eldest child always received a double portion of the inheritance. So, you know, technically I'm the only child of my mother and my father, but they each got remarried and had uh, um, two kids. Um, Dad had two boys and my mother had two daughters. And, uh, and, but as the oldest, whatever inheritance, theoretically, I would receive a double portion of both. That was the right of order. So what you're seeing here, to some degree, is the right of order. Also understand, Paul is dealing with sin and the breakdown of order. So he's got to fix it. And we can't get all that upset if we don't like the way Paul fixes it. This is not, this is a post-Genesis 3 solution. You go back to Genesis 1-2 and, and before sin entered the world, there was never any need for stuff like this. Why? Because there were no sin and no problems. Sin forces solutions. So Paul is forced to deal with the solution caused by the false teachers, in part because Women in their freedom that was unheard of, heard of, were also causing problems. I will not comment more on women causing problems. Verse 8 says, therefore, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger and dispute. Oh, by the way, if you make too big a deal about the stuff on women, just remember, most men do not lift up holy hands when they pray. Thank you. Sorry about that. It's not as bad as to bring in. Most men, you know, I mean, I always, as a Baptist, when people, man, we shouldn't be lifting hands in prayer, really, in worship. And you ever get, a, even you older Baptists get uncomfortable when people lift up their hands in worship and pray? Well, just understand, Paul said to do that. So, you know, whatever that's worth. Likewise, he says, 
I want women to adore themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or expensive apparel. Any women got any gold on today? Any pearls? Any fancy hairdos? Some of you men, you ain't got nothing. So understand this, and I don't want to over, we have to be careful. In that, the, the church that day, women of wealth, the Gentile women of wealth became followers of Jesus. In that day, one of the things that happened is people like to display their wealth. So there's two lanes of thought in Ephesus. There were a lot of women who were temple prostitutes. That was a huge thing in Ephesus, and they had a certain style of dress. And wealthy women might have a certain style of dress. So some of this kind of overlaps. Different people think different things. I think both can be true. So Paul is saying, look, evidently, one of the problems was that some of the women, that was causing some trouble, is that some of the women were dressing in such a way that was immodest, like that never happens on Sunday here. They were immodest and were flaunting their wealth. Others may have been, you know, such that it gave the appearance that they were something they weren't. In, in the Greek culture, this was all part of the Greek culture. And so since it was causing problems, Paul, what Paul said, he said, look, be modest and discreet. Don't, don't make your hair all fancy. He's not saying don't ever wear jewelry at all. He says, just don't overdo it. He says, but rather by means of good works, it's proper for a woman making a claim to godliness. You're a godly woman. The real value is what you do. Now, that, there's nothing wrong with looking nice. And I mean, I... That's not like, please don't just roll out of, any of you, just don't like roll out of bed on Sunday and put on your clean and dirty clothes and show up. I don't care who you are. But you're smart enough to have perspective. Be modest. Don't be ostentatious. Listen, if, if you got a new $50,000 necklace, that's cool. Don't wear it here. Especially if we have your address in our system, we'll find you, man. Oh boy, this next verse 11. <laughs> a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Yeah, just do that. So here's what happens. Christianity brought freedom to women. You know, women participated in worship. It says in other places, you know, they, they, they would stand up and prophesy. They were involved in worship. It's not, but what was happening in Ephesus is that they were, they were abused. Somehow there was an abuse of this freedom. That was causing chaos in damaging the, the, the witness of the church. So Paul, first of all, women are to learn just like men are to learn. But he says in, in, in this instance, just listen. Receive Don't stand up and offer what you think. Some, there's a lot who think, and I, and I tend to agree with this, that it may be that one of the real problems is that some of the leadership, which we'll see next week, the overseers and the deacons, were leading women astray. So that women, without the context, without the credentials per se, were standing up and there was controversy. And guests who would come, they had guests come to church just like we did. This was unseemly. It was causing difficulty. The lack of orderliness was problematic. So learn, but just do it quietly. He says, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. We see that I, I cannot tell you how many churches, and I know, women shouldn't teach men. Just realize this. Remember I mentioned Priscilla and Aquila Sunday? Remember that? Do you realize Aquila discipled Apollos? She taught a man and Paul commended her for it. 
they had a church in their home and they were leading it. Put it in the context. Now, part of the context, and this is important, is it says, to teach or exercise authority over a man to remain quiet. In other words, women were rising up inside the church, the appearance of what happens, and they were having authority from a preaching and teaching standpoint over the men who were leaders. Maybe the, past, the elders and the pastors we see in chapter 3 and the deacons. It was causing chaos. So Paul is saying the women aren't to be the ones in authority at the church of Ephesus. It is causing too many, much chaos and too many problems for the church. He gives a reason for it. <laughs> it was Adam who was first created, then Eve. In other words, he's talking about primogeniture. There's an orderliness to things. I have never in my life exercised over my wife the authority that is inherently mine. Because one of the things we realize is my wife and I are never in that much chaos. And if we are, I just go with what she wants, figuring that's the better solution to the sanctity and the health of my mental well-being. But when we disagree, there's been a couple times what we should do. She always defers to me. Because somebody has to make the final decision. And, and that's because of sin. When there's no sin. And, and the problem, he says, listen, the reason it's this way is because in the order of creation, Adam came first. And then he says, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman. And became a wrongdoer. This is a hard thing. But just remember, in Romans, Paul places full responsibility for sin on Adam. Full responsibility of sin, not on Eve. Here, though, in this situation, he is saying, remember, the reason we have to put full responsibility of sin on Adam is because his wife led him astray. They were both guilty. One is not more guilty than the other. So here's the thing, and, and let me just put this the best way that I can. In order for the church to run, if there's a conflict that this church had, and the conflict was the false teachers were leading women astray, and they were exerting authority over some of the men who were supposed to be in leadership, and the thing was just chaotic. Paul says, Timothy, 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 straighten it all out. And here's what you tell them. The elders, the overseer, which we'll see in chapter 3, they're the ones who are in authority. They're the teacher, preacher. That's how it needs to be. The women have a vital role in the life of that church. But in public, public, this is public worship, they are not to take at Ephesus the primary responsibility of teaching. It's causing too much confusion. Fix that. And if they don't know why, here's why. Because in God's order of things, he ordered it that first created was man. Not because he's more important or more valuable. It's just the order of creation. That's the solution. By the way, that's, that is... That is not cultural. That is theological. And that's how it needs to be. Now, the hard part is, how do we apply all that to our world? And so I would just say, we have to make a difference between theological, um, things that Paul theologically explains and ecclesiologically explains. Ecclesiology is a doctrine of the church. This is ecclesiology. This isn't theology. This is not about the inspiration of scripture or the resurrection. In, in the orderliness of that church, 
This is what Paul did. Now, there are principles to follow. So I, I, I say this, and this is how I look at it. I, I, I don't believe that it, there, there's never a place in the New Testament that says women can be a pastor. It's not there. Now, I don't necessarily think it says they can't be either. I don't think this says in all circumstances they can't be. But I know it never says they can't be. I think it's best, you know, when I come from, I, I just look at it as Southern Baptist. I don't really care about Methodist, Lutherans, Presbyterian do it. They don't care a lick what they do. I really don't. And they don't care what I do. That's fine. In our world, it's best that they manage the pastor. But if there's this church somewhere in, in, in the world where there are no men who <laughs> aren't any spiritual men being saved, and your only choice is a woman pastor, well, I, I would think you would want a woman pastor as opposed to no pastor. But even in America, if there's a church somewhere, you know, and there are women pastors and preachers, it doesn't cause chaos. People, if their theology is good, if people are coming to Jesus, I don't care. Why do I care? In the Southern Baptist Convention this past summer, people are getting all bent out of shape because Saddleback, ordained, you know, one of the largest churches in America, ordained three women to be pastors. Not the senior pastor, just pastors in general. And, you know, and, and I'm like, why do I care what Saddleback does? And I, it's not theology. It's ecclesiology. It's the orderliness of the church. If it doesn't interfere with, I'm not worried about it. Now, you know, I don't come here and make hard and fast rules about what women can and can't do. I make a hard and fast rule about the orderliness in the church as to priority. And whatever we have to do to resolve that, we'll resolve that. And that also includes you know, the priority of the order of things. Verse 15 says, but women will be preserved, some of you have saved through childbirth and continue in faith, love and sanctity with moderation. The, the, I, you know, you could, I could spend an hour talking about this. I think at the end of the day, here's what it says. As an example of the value of women, Their primary role in, in life is motherhood, by bearing children. It, their primary responsibility as a follower of Christ is the orderliness of the house. So a woman with faith, love, and sanctity, with moderation in their life, they control and value the house through the bearing of children. Some think that it means that, uh, they're going to be saved for having kids. It can't mean that. Some think it has to do with Jesus. John R. W. Stott thinks... It has to do with the coming of Christ, and it replies for all of us. Uh, my mentor, uh, Tommy Lee, in his commentary basically takes the position that I tend to agree with, that the simplest solution in light of all of this is to understand in a very general way that the unbelievable value that women have in our lives begins in the home. And that's what he's saying, I think. Begin, focus on your faith in the home. So, we've made it through there. I probably created more questions than I answered. And next week, I'll do the same when I talk about overseers and deacons. I'm aware of that. I, I simply think that in passages like this, it's best to take fundamental principles from it and apply that biblically correct. 
in a, and I'm going over and I'm sorry, in a world, in a culture, in opposition to Christ, which they had and what we had. Worship matters and to have orderliness in worship matters. And Timothy, as representing Paul, and at that moment, the bishop of that church had a responsibility to bring order out of the chaos. And Paul gave him some principles that are biblically solid to do that. And if that's what it takes, that's what you do.